convenient collection. Only $2.99 or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Search for Blood Tingling Tales Complete Series on Amazon or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. It's not easy being a werewolf. As a matter of fact, it sucks. Transformation is the worst part. I feel like I've been set on fire for about 60 seconds. Now that may not sound like a long time, but next time you burn your hand and jerk it away from the hot item, envision what it would feel like if you kept your hand pressed against that scorching heat for 60 seconds. Now imagine the pain not being isolated on a small section of your body, but rather every single inch of you. It doesn't sound like fun, does it? Take my word for it, it isn't. After that painful 60 seconds, I black out. I don't wake up until the next day, and I have no recollection of what I did in my lycanthropic state. If any positivity comes with being a werewolf, it's lost on me. I'm just a regular guy before I turn, and I'm a regular guy after. The actual werewolf part is nothing but a void of time to me. I would question whether or not I really was a werewolf had I not set up video cameras to see myself become one. (laughs) I have to say, I'm a pretty damn impressive werewolf. Massive, muscular, huge hands with thick black claws. My snout is extremely elongated with razor fangs that are seemingly so big they don't fit within my mouth. My ears are long and rounded, not unlike the ears of a dingo. My chest and arms are enormous, resembling the girth of a gorilla, but even more intimidating. When standing upright, I must be seven feet tall, although from what I've seen, I don't actually stand upright very often. I don't walk erect, nor do I crawl on all fours. My movement is similar to that of a monkey using their arms to provide a kind of bouncing motion. However, movement is much smoother. I tend to glide. And oh, am I fast. At least as fast as a dog. When I wake up the next day, I always feel rested. Without question, the most reinvigorated I ever feel is the day after being a werewolf. I usually wake up with a stale, salty taste in my mouth, obviously the bloody remnants of whatever I fed on the night before. I prefer not to know the details. It's a full moon that changes me. I have no idea why. None of the other werewolves know either. Oh yeah, there are others. The werewolf population is sparse. In the city I live in, there are three others. We meet up for a werewolf support group once a week. It's nice to know I'm not alone in this life, and there are others who can relate. How one turns into a werewolf is much like the tradition in the movies. If you are bitten by a werewolf and survive, there's a 95% chance you'll become one. And let me emphasize that it is a bite, not a scratch, which is necessary for the metamorphosis. It's something about the werewolf's saliva needing to be directly introduced into the bloodstream. I got bit by some werewolf when I was on vacation in the Bahamas. He attacked me on a lonely beach late at night. Apparently, the werewolf found the only other person on the beach more appealing than me. When that person witnessed the attack, they started freaking out and began to run. 
With that, the werewolf dropped me and went after him. At the time, I thought I was lucky. I didn't realize I had been cursed. Seriously, it's not easy being a werewolf. We werewolves have to keep very discreet about our infliction. It was in the late 1880s in England where one werewolf revealed itself to others and all hell broke loose. It was similar to the witch trials. They rounded up anyone they thought might be a werewolf and burned them alive. We all expect a response not dissimilar from that if we were found out even in this day and age, so we keep it hush-hush. A love life is a difficult thing to keep with the werewolf disease. I mean, how do you tell your significant other that you're a werewolf? Now, there have been werewolves in the past who have managed to keep a relationship, but it has been few and far between. You see, eventually the other party wants to know why you're slinking off during every full moon. After a while, it grows old for most potential companions. Long-distance relationships seem to do best for a werewolf. Time together is infrequent enough where working the full moon schedule is much more practical. Of course, long-distance relationships usually don't last. I'm in a relationship right now. Yeah, local girl. I made it to the eight-month mark. This is traditionally the time frame when they begin to have their suspicions aroused. I'm going through that right now. You see, we've been together long enough that she's starting to wonder why I have to have some nights away and why during said nights, I'm not responding to calls or texts. I tend to run the gambit on excuses pretty fast. This is typically the time when a girlfriend will assume I'm cheating. My current girlfriend hasn't come right out and accused me of betrayal, but I can see it in her eyes. She's wondering, She'll need answers soon, and when that need arises, I'll have to break it off. It's a pity. If I weren't a werewolf, I could really see myself with this one long term. Her name is Jessica. She's a girl next door type, very friendly, very fun. Last full moon, I told her I was going away for business. That was my mistake. I prefer to do my werewolfing at least two hours away from where I live. It's just good policy not to kill people close to the homestead, but something unusual happened the week leading up to the full moon. I got the flu. <laughs> it kicked my ass pretty bad. I had planned on leaving the morning of the full moon day, but I couldn't keep my eyes open. I figured it wouldn't hurt to sleep a couple more hours. I even set the alarm to make sure I wasn't out longer than that. But. There was a power outage, rendering my alarm clock useless. I woke up the next morning. I was still in my apartment, but in the kitchen rather than my bed. The front window of my apartment was smashed out. Police cars were lining my street. Cops were pounding on my front door. I had no idea what happened the previous night, but obviously I was in real trouble. I knew eventually such a day might come, so I was prepared for it. I snuck out onto the roof from a hatch I made in the ceiling. I then climbed down the fire escape to the back alley. I immediately called one of my werewolf pals. He told me to meet the group at our regular location. When I got there, they clued me in on what likely happened. With no alarm to wake me up, I slept until the moon was full and I transformed. It was around this time that Jessica just so happened to be driving by my apartment. I told her I was going to be out of town, so when she looked up and saw movement within my apartment, she got the idea that I had a girl up there. I know this because she called her friend and explained that she planned on going up to my apartment to confront me. Evidently, when she got to my apartment, the door was unlocked and she quietly crept in, expecting to walk in and catch me in the arms of another woman. Instead, she walked in on me as a werewolf. I guess I got in between her and the front door because she chose to hurl herself out of the front window of my apartment. That's right, she jumped out of the damn window. It was a three-story fall. She must have been seriously hurt, but that was irrelevant. 
You see, being a crazed werewolf, I jumped out right behind her and started feeding on her in the middle of Main Street. Multiple people captured the whole thing on their cell phones. The lid may not be totally blown off of the whole werewolf thing per se, but it's a huge step in that direction. Ugh, what a mess. The other werewolves weren't thrilled about my negligence. As a matter of fact, they were pretty pissed off. The fact that it was my window that Jessica jumped from makes it impossible for me not to become involved in some way. The other werewolves decided the best way to handle the situation is to terminate me. It's the right decision. I would be on board with it if it were one of the other werewolves in this situation. No silver bullet needed. A regular old slug will do the trick just fine while I'm in my human state. If I were in my werewolf form, it would be another story. Still no silver bullet needed, that's the stuff of movies, but it would take a lot of shots to kill a werewolf. So, here I sit, watching my werewolf buddies decide which one of them is going to shoot me. They all like me, so nobody wants to do it. But eventually, one of them will man up and put a bullet in my brain. And just like that, my werewolf days will be over. Really, it's a blessing. Like I said before, it's not easy being a werewolf. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. The Lunatic. I was on my way home from the grocery store. I wasn't in a hurry. Being a recently divorced woman with no boyfriend and no prospects, I didn't have anyone waiting at home for me, so I was enjoying the drive. It was a nice night. I had my windows down allowing the breeze to flow through my long hair. When I reached into my shirt pocket to pull out a cigarette, I realized that I only had two cigarettes left. I had forgotten to put that on my grocery list. Fortunately, there was a small gas station slash convenience store just a couple miles out of my way that I could replenish my cigarette supply at. As I drove down a dark, lonely road toward the convenience store, I turned on the radio I flipped through several stations looking for some smooth jazz, but stopped on a news station when I heard the announcer say, breaking news. I turned up the volume and listened intently to his concerned voice as he spit out the report. A patient has escaped from the local mental institution. He is considered extremely dangerous. We encourage everybody to lock their doors and windows and stay in their houses until the escape patient is apprehended. A security guard described the patient as being unhinged and violent. Please take shelter and do not answer your door for anybody you do not know. The mental institution in question was in the middle of town. The escape patient could have been anywhere. As I pulled into the empty parking lot of the convenience store, shivers ran down my spine as I realized that I had left my car unlocked when I was in the grocery store. It was at this moment that I heard rustling coming from the back seat. Someone was back there. I came to a skidding halt outside of the convenience store entrance and darted from my car. I bolted through the entrance and spoke in a panic at the alarm store clerk who was standing behind the register counter. He's in my back seat! He's in my back seat! The store clerk was a chubby man in his late 20s with a scruffy beard. He hurried around the counter and tried to calm me down. 
Relax, lady, relax. Tell me who's in your back seat. The lunatic, the escaped lunatic, he, he's in my back seat. The clerk looked concerned as he looked back and forth between me and my haphazardly parked car out front. Are you sure it's the escaped lunatic? Well, I mean, I, I, I think so. I, I, I heard the report on the radio, and then I heard someone back there, and it's him. I, I mean, it's him. It's got to be him. The clerk continued his attempt to ease my panicked state. Okay, lady. Okay, it's all right. Just relax. I'm going to go out and check your car. You just stay here. Understand? I nodded and watched on as the brave clerk hurried out of the store and didn't hesitate to open the back door to my car. He leaned inside the vehicle and was out of view for several very long seconds. Finally, he emerged, shut the door, and walked back into the store. There is nobody in your car, ma'am. Everything is fine. I shook my head. No, I heard him. I heard him back there. It was your grocery bags. They're sitting on your back seat. You had your windows open. The breeze made them rattle. When you heard the report on the news, and then you heard the bags rattling, I think your imagination got the best of you. There's nobody in my car? The clerk shook his head, and just like that I felt like the biggest idiot in the world. I let out a deep breath. <sighs> well, don't I feel like a complete and total fool? The clerk gave me a pat on the back. Not at all. I heard the reports. They're scary. There's nothing wrong with being frightened. Better to be safe than sorry. I smiled and thanked the clerk profusely before I exited the store, got into my car, and started driving back home. Honestly, I wasn't looking forward to getting home to my big lonely house. The good news was that I live in an active neighborhood and have great neighbors. If I felt too uneasy at home with the lunatic still running around, most of my neighbors would be happy to let me stay the night with them. As I drove toward home, I reached into my shirt pocket again for a cigarette, and it dawned on me that in my panic, I completely forgot to get cigarettes. I had only driven a few miles, so I turned around and went back to the convenience store. When I entered the store, I was met by an eerie silence. The clerk was not behind the counter. I strolled through the store, looked down the few aisles the store had for the clerk, but there was no sign of him. When I reached the back of the store, I called out. Hello? It's me again. Are you here? A few seconds after that, I heard the jingle of the front door opening. I assumed the clerk had gone outside for something and just returned, so I walked back to the front of the store. To my dismay, he wasn't there. I stood by the register for a good five minutes before I gave up on the clerk. The cigarettes were on a display behind the counter. I figured if I just grabbed a pack and left the cash next to the register, he'd understand. I strolled behind the counter and halted in terror. On the floor was the dead body of the clerk. His throat had been slashed. I let out a shriek of horror. I fumbled around for my phone and with trembling fingers dialed 911. They said a car was on the way. The dispatcher told me to stay on the phone until the police arrived, but I was freaking out. The lunatic could still be in the store with me. The dispatcher urged me to stay put, but I was having none of it. I was convinced the killer was in the store with me, and I ran out from around the counter and dashed out of the store. As I approached my car, I fumbled with the key and dropped them to the ground. I bent down to get them and felt someone grab me by the shoulders. I fought with all my might, but they wrestled me away from the car. That's when I noticed the red and blue flashing lights behind me. I managed to break free from the man who had a hold of me and instantly recognized him as a police officer. The officer was not paying attention to me. His eyes were fixed on something past me. He was looking at my car. Freeze! Don't move! A barrage of gunfire filled the air and I whirled around to see what was going on. The lunatic was emerging from the backseat of my car with a bloody knife. He was now full of bullets and fell to the ground, dead. Later, the security camera footage showed the lunatic killing the clerk. 
Just seconds later, I entered the store. The lunatic hid behind the counter as I walked to the back of the store. He then stepped out from behind the counter and watched me while my back was turned to him. He held his knife up in an attack position and took a few steps toward me, but then my car caught his eye and he exited the store and snuck into the back seat of the car. His likely plan was to kill me and use my car to escape town. Pregnant Smoker I went to a local night spot to get a stiff drink. I was drowning my sorrows, you see. My divorce was officially final. A divorce I never wanted. I loved my husband. I would have done anything for him. But the one thing he wanted more than anything else I couldn't give him. A baby. We tried and tried. Believe me, we exhausted every avenue for getting pregnant, and absolutely nothing worked. It turned out I just couldn't have kids, and because of that, he no longer wanted me. I tried to talk him into adopting a baby, but he said he wanted to have his own, and if he couldn't have one with me, he wanted to have one with someone else. So we divorced. And there I was, attempting to drink the heartbreak away when I saw her. She had long, black hair. She was pale and sickly. She was at least eight months pregnant, maybe nine. And she was smoking. And I don't just mean smoking. I mean chain-smoking. She was using her finished cigarettes to light the next one. As if that wasn't bad enough, she was drinking. Shots! I even heard her order a shot of 151 proof rum at one point and watched in horror as she swallowed it down like water. Then she made her way to the dance floor. She was twerking, gyrating, and sweating up a storm. She even attempted to do the electric worm on her pregnant belly. Everyone in the bar was staring at her with dropped jaws. They were appalled. But I was more than appalled. I was furious. Eventually the bartender asked her to leave and several people applauded as she strutted out of the joint. Apparently out of sight, out of mind was the policy of most of these people, but not for me. I followed her to the parking lot. Then I observed her pull a small bottle of something from her purse, take several deep sniffs of it, and then toss it to the ground before getting into her car and peeling away. I rushed to see what it was that she just sniffed. I let out an audible gasp when I saw that it was modeling glue. Was she deliberately trying to kill her baby? Regardless, she certainly didn't deserve this child. How could someone so careless and negligent get pregnant when someone like me, who would have been a wonderful wife and mother, could not? It wasn't fair. I jumped into my car and gave chase. I followed the woman to a medium-sized house in a standard suburban neighborhood. A cloud of cigarette smoke followed her as she emerged from the vehicle. She then proceeded to treat her stomach as a bongo drum, pounding away to an invisible rhythm as she sauntered into the house. I spied on her through the front window. As soon as she got inside, she sat down on her couch and shot up. She injected some kind of drug into her veins, probably heroin. And then to top it off, she stripped naked, strolled out of her back door, and plopped her pregnant ass down into a steaming hot tub. Didn't she know that if you're pregnant, you aren't supposed to get into a hot tub? She followed that up by popping the top on a bottle of wine and started chugging it straight from the bottle. That was the last straw. I burst into her backyard, 
grabbed the wine bottle from her demented hands and conked her over the head with it. I tied her up in our living room. When she came to, I told her everything that I witnessed and made my opinion extremely clear that she was not deserving of a child. She was still in a drunken, drug-induced stupor, but understood what I was saying and was well aware of the situation she now found herself in. Go ahead and kill me. I don't care. Believe me, I would like to, but I don't want to harm the child growing inside you. She began to laugh at me. Child. <laughs> it's a monster. I didn't know what to say as she continued. Why the hell do you think I'm smoking, drinking, sniffing glue, shooting heroin, jumping around like a fool and soaking in a hot tub? Why? What do you think I'm trying to do? Then I realized... You're trying to kill it. <laughs> You're damn right I am! Then why don't you just get an abortion? I tried. It wouldn't let me. Who wouldn't let you? The baby wouldn't. I was raped by a monster. Half man, half fly. Its monster offspring is inside of me and I'm trying to kill it before it wreaks havoc on the world. That's when I realized she was insane. I immediately pulled out my phone and started to dial the police when the pregnant woman started having spasms. Oh no, it's coming. The monster is coming. Slime began oozing out from between the woman's legs as she let out the most hideous of screams. I watched on as the woman's eyes rolled back into her head and she went into violent convulsions. Blood began to pour from her nostrils and eye sockets and then the upper portion of her body went lifeless while the bottom portion of her body wriggled around on its own. I heard a loud snap and splash like a water balloon hitting hot pavement and then witnessed a river of blood and pus-like fluid flow from between the woman's legs followed by the emergence of a gigantic squirming maggot. I ran as fast as I could toward the front door of the house but slipped on the grotesque fluid and fell hard slamming my head against the floor in the process. I was in a daze. Everything was blurry. I was trying to move, but my body wasn't getting the message. I laid there helpless as the hulking, slimy maggot wriggled its way to me. I was the monster's first meal. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store. The window across the street. My name is Melinda. I recently started a new job in an old four-story office building. I work on the fourth floor and was assigned a desk. It just so happens the desk is the only one on the entire floor with a window next to it. The view isn't anything special, just the main street of the town and the building across the way. But still, it's nice to be able to stare out the window from time to time. I started taking note of the abandoned building across the street. It was a mirror image of the office I was in, only it was much older and run down. It appeared to be vacant. All of the windows on the front of the old building were boarded up, except for one. The window on the fourth floor, directly across the street from me. 
The window was filthy. Thick, grimy muck had caked the outside of the window over the years, making it impossible to see through the window even when the sunlight was hitting it directly. I had only been there a month when something strange happened. I noticed movement from behind the window. I got the impression that someone was waving their hands, although I could only catch subtle glimpses of the movement through that filthy window. Was someone trying to get my attention? Probably not. More likely someone was on that floor doing some work. Perhaps the building was in the early stages of renovation. That would be nice. I'd much rather be looking out at a fixed-up active building than the desolate structure it currently was. The next day, things got stranger. I had been out to lunch with some of the girls in the office. When I returned to my desk, I found a dirty envelope sitting on it. My name and the address of the building were scribbled across the front of the envelope with a pen that appeared to be running out of ink. There was no postage on the envelope. I opened it up. Inside was a torn scrap of paper. Written on the paper with that same near-empty pen were the words, Help me. Let me out. I never got the impression that this was a gag. I took it seriously. I asked around as to who left it on my desk. The secretary downstairs said that a woman that she had never seen before came into the lobby with the envelope and dropped it at her desk. I asked her what the woman looked like. The secretary couldn't remember much about the woman other than she was wearing a bright red jacket. What did this note mean, and who was the woman who dropped it off? I kept the note on my desk and looked at it throughout the day. I felt like I had to figure out what this meant, and who sent it. The next day, things took the strangest turn of all. I was sitting at my desk entering data on my computer when the secretary came to my desk holding another envelope. This one also had my name on it and the address of the building, although this wasn't written in pen. The letters appeared to have been smeared on the envelope with dirt. I asked her if it was delivered by the woman in red. She shook her head. It was a man. He was dressed in a nice suit. He said he found the envelope on the sidewalk across the street. On the sidewalk across the street? How odd. I ripped open the envelope and expected to extract another note, but there was no paper in the envelope at all. The only thing that was in it was a flash drive. I knew better than to insert a strange flash drive into my computer, but I had an insatiable compulsion to know what was on this flash drive and who sent it, so I took a risk and inserted the flash drive. There was only one file on it. I opened it and let out a gasp. It was a video of me working at my desk. The camera recording the video was jerky and moving around a lot. Most of the video was dark and dirty, but when the camera moved a certain way, I could see myself through the outside window of my office building. And the video wasn't taken from the ground. The video was on an even level with the fourth floor of my building. I turned and looked out at the decrepit building across the street. This video had been taken from behind that filthy window on the fourth floor of that building. Someone was over there, watching me. Then I thought back to the note from the day before that said, help me, let me out. I called the police. After looking at the video, they too concluded that someone had to have taken that video from across the street. They attempted to enter the building, but it was locked up tight, so they contacted the building owner who resides in Florida, which is a long way from where that building is. The owner had alibis that proved it wasn't him, and insisted that there was no way anybody could get into that building. That's where the police left it. They said if I got any other strange correspondence to call them first and they'd take it from there. But for now, we just have to wait and see what happened. Only, I couldn't wait. 
I couldn't get my mind off that building, the window, the fourth floor, and who was there. Who was watching me? Who was writing the letters? What was going on? It was 5.15 p.m. Everyone else had left for the day. I had more work to do and was all alone in the office when I received the phone call. Melinda? Yes? My name is Rupert Crawley. I own the building across the street. Stay away from that building. I'm warning you. Stay away from that building. I felt my blood begin to boil. What was he hiding? What's going on? Who who is on the fourth floor? What do they want? There was a long pause before he answered. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Now listen to me closely. You are going to have a strong urge to go over there, but don't do it. Ignore the urge. Stay away. Who is in that building? Forget everything that happened. Let it go. You tell me who's in that building. Let. It. Go. With that, he hung up. I couldn't let it go. I wouldn't let it go. I hurried across the street to the rundown building. The front door was chained shut. The back door had multiple locks. There was no way for anyone to get in or out. What happened next was pure insanity, and I'm not sure what compelled me to do it, but something did. I scaled the fire escape of the building next to it. When I reached the top of the building, I looked across to the neglected building. There was something on the roof. I couldn't make out exactly what it was, but something was there, and I was sure it held the answers to my questions. There was an alley between the buildings which made for an approximate five-foot jump to get over there. I didn't hesitate. I kicked off my office shoes, hiked up my skirt, got a running start, and jumped. I barely made it, but I did. There I was on the roof of that old building. As I stood up, I noticed a delicate, swirling white light in the center of the roof. It was barely visible, but if I looked closely, I could see it shimmering in the sunlight. What was this? Throwing caution to the wind, I approached the light, reached out, and touched it. Everything turned white for a few seconds, and then I found myself falling, and I hit the floor with a thud. I could hear footsteps. It sounded like someone was running around on the roof above me. I cried out for help, but got no response. I looked around at my surroundings. I was in a room. A big, dark, dusty room. The only illumination was a pale beam of light shining in through a muck-coated window. That's when I realized I was on the fourth floor. I wasn't quite sure how I wound up there, but there was no doubt that's where I was. I rushed over to the window and confirmed it. There were only a few spots where the window was clear enough to see out. I could see my office building across the street. I could see my desk window. I pulled out my phone and attempted to call someone to help me, but no calls were going through. I'd only hear static. After a few deep breaths, I gathered myself and started scanning the room. My blood ran cold when I saw them. Skeletons. Dozens of them. They were scattered all over the floor. Some were lying down. Some were propped against the wall. They were fully dressed in clothes that were once nice, but now were tattered and torn by time. I ran around the entire floor looking for a way out, but there was no escape. As the sun went down, the floor was enveloped by darkness. I screamed all night. The next morning when the sun started shining through the few clearings of the window, I looked outside and my world was shaken to its foundation. I saw myself. I was sitting at my desk in front of the window across the street. How could this be? Oh, I didn't care. I had to get my attention. 
I started waving my arms like a madwoman, but realized the outside of the window was too filthy to see through. I noticed there was a slit of a crack at the bottom of the window. I started pounding on that area of the window hoping to break it, but was unsuccessful after countless attempts. Then I got an idea. I rifled through my purse and found a few envelopes. I tore a section off of one envelope and wrote, help me, let me out. But my pen was starting to run out of ink. I used the last bit of ink to scribble my name and the address to the office across the street and pushed the envelope out the crack in the window and watched it float down to the sidewalk below. Nobody saw it that day. I spent another night in the darkness. The next morning, a woman in bright red picked up the envelope. As I had hoped, she carried the letter to the building. I watched myself as I opened the envelope and read the message. I could see confusion on my face. I didn't know what that note meant. I had to let her know where I was, but how could I do that? Again, I filtered through my purse looking for anything I might be able to use to get my other self's attention. Then I came across an old flash drive that I had never used before and an adapter to attach it to my phone. I tried to record myself explaining what was happening, but my phone was cheap and didn't have a flash to illuminate myself, so I appeared as nothing more than a black blob. And the audio wasn't recording, I could only assume that the strange light on the roof of the building was interfering with it. I messed around with it for hours and it wouldn't function at all, except when I held it directly against the window. I thought, if I can somehow get this flash drive to my other self, she would know where I was. She'll know what to do. I dropped the flash drive in another envelope. The pen I had was completely out of ink, so I ran my fingers over the dirty floor and scribbled my name and office address on the front of the envelope. Again, I dropped it out the crack of the window. It was the next day when a man picked it up. Like the woman the day before, he was nice enough to bring the envelope to the building. I could see myself across the street trying so hard to figure out what was going on, but to no avail. But I could feel her. I mean, she was me, after all. We had a connection. She knew something was wrong. She knew she had to find me. Her sense of self-preservation was kicking in and she didn't even know it. It wasn't long before I heard a thud and footsteps on the roof above me. She was on the roof. She was going to find a way out for me. That was when I noticed a subtle swirling light on the ceiling in the middle of the room. I stood under the light and stared up at it. Suddenly, there was a bright flash and everything went white. I woke up on the roof of the building. I was out. I don't know how, but I was out. Even though I was weak, adrenaline was pumping through my veins enough for me to make the jump onto the next building and to shimmy down the fire escape. When I reached the alley, I was startled by a man's voice. I told you to let it go. I turned to see a short, thin man with shaggy gray hair and a matching mustache. He was dressed in business casual attire and was holding a cane. I'm Rupert Crawley. I own the building. Can you please tell me what in the world is going on? He nodded. I owe you that. He leaned onto his cane as he spoke. Believe it or not, that building was once state-of-the-art. I used it for experimentation. Time travel experimentation. I was attempting to build a time machine, you see. I was never able to accomplish that, but somehow I did manage to tap into a kind of time portal. Unfortunately, I wasn't sure how I created the portal and couldn't figure out how to get rid of it. And thus it exists to this day. I have no control over it. That's why the building is locked up tight, to keep people away. But every once in a while, someone gets in there, like you did. There's two of you running around now. That's very dangerous. Two of me? Yes, 
when your other self freed you, they took your place on the fourth floor. They are trapped there like you were. Well, I have to let her out. No, you mustn't. You need to leave yourself there. Let her die. Then you will be solo again as it should be. No, that would be murder. I'd be killing myself. You can destroy the world. There are already two of you. If you go there again, there will be a third and another and another. You are ripping apart the fabrics of space and time. You can shatter everything if you don't stop. Forget it all. Let it go. What he was asking me to do was impossible. There was no way I was going to allow myself to wither away and die in that building. I shook my head. I can't. He nodded. I know you can't. That's why I'm here. I waited for him to elaborate. When he reached into his pocket, extracted a gun, pointed it at my head and pulled the trigger, I realized no further elaboration was necessary. Blood Tingling Tales, the complete series. All five volumes of Blood Tingling Tales bundled into one convenient collection. Only $2.99 or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Search for Blood Tingling Tales Complete Series on Amazon or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Lost phone. I lost my phone. Oh, how careless of me. My emotions tangled into a web of frustration, anger, worry, and fear. I had been running errands all day, so it could have been anywhere. I took in a deep breath, realizing that a negative attitude would do me no good. I calmed myself down and steadied myself. In these types of situations, I find it best for one to retrace their steps to see if they can remember where they could have possibly misplaced the missing object. I did just that. I closed my eyes, took relaxing breaths, and focused on my day. I distinctly remember putting my phone in my purse just before I left my house in the morning. My first stop was to the dry cleaners. I was just picking up a few items. I wasn't there long, in and out quick. I never removed my phone from my purse. From there I met my friend Sandy for lunch at this great Mexican-slash-El Salvadorian restaurant. Their food is always fresh and fantastic. We got there early enough that it wasn't crowded. There were only a few other people there. I remember a man sitting by himself in a corner booth. He was dressed in black and was reading a newspaper. He was holding the paper in a way where I couldn't see his face, but could see the top of his head. He was wearing a black wool beanie type hat. I remember a few times I gazed in his direction and caught him peering over the top of the paper looking at me. Whenever I caught him, he'd quickly lift the newspaper back up over his face. Most people consider me to be quite an attractive woman. I'm in my late 20s, so my body is probably in its prime. I get a fair amount of gawkers, so I didn't think much of the stranger sneaking peeks at me. Sandy and I had a nice lunch and chat. When the waitress came to our table to hand us the check, I handed her my phone and asked if she would take a picture of us. She did so, and then Sandy and I bickered over who was going to pay the check. Eventually, I won out. We said our goodbyes, and from there I went to the post office. I just had to drop off a few letters in the mailbox. Nothing out of the ordinary happened while I was there, other than the fact that I noticed an early 1970s Lincoln luxury car 
parked on the side of the road. It was dull black in color and had a distinct pointed grille that was positioned between two hidden headlights. Across the street from the post office was the water company. I crossed the street and paid my bill in person. On the way out, I bumped into an old high school teacher of mine on the sidewalk. We talked for a few minutes and then I left for the mall. On the way to the mall, I pulled over and filled my tank up with gas at a small gas station. As I was filling up my tank, I vaguely remember that black Lincoln slowly passing by the gas station and then turning down a nearby road. You don't see those cars often anymore, so to see it twice in one day kept it fresh in my mind. From there, I went to the mall for the sole purpose of buying a new dress. I picked out several that I liked, tried them all on, and chose one. After that, I went grocery shopping. Nothing unusual happened while I was there, except I remember seeing a man dressed in black at the end of one of the aisles. He was tall and thin and was wearing a black beanie hat. He was watching me. When I looked in his direction, he quickly exited the aisle and vanished from my field of view. Was that the same man I saw earlier in the restaurant? Anyhow, from there, I came home, put my groceries away, lay down in my bed, and took a 30-minute nap. When I woke up, I instinctively reached over to my nightstand to check my phone for the time, and that's when I realized it was gone. Based on my focused recollection of the day, the only time I took my phone out of my purse was at the restaurant for lunch. I drove back there and asked the staff if anyone turned in a phone. Unfortunately, nobody did, so I came back home, sat down on my living room couch, and contemplated my options. I had so much on my phone. All my contacts, call records, text messages, tons of photos, including a few risque ones of me that I never wanted any other eyes to see, and all of my phone settings. Foolishly, I never backed any of it up. What was I going to do? It was then that I heard three slow, heavy, methodical knocks on my front door. I live alone in a quiet neighborhood with lots of trees and foliage in between each house, creating significant privacy. I wasn't expecting anyone. When I got to the front door, I pulled the front room window's curtain over. From there, I get a great view of the entire front porch and can check to see who is at my door. To my surprise, there was nobody there. I stepped to the front door and opened it. I thought maybe the mailman left a package that I didn't notice when I looked out the window. There was no package, but I was delighted to see my phone lying on the welcome mat outside my front door. I let out a breath of relief and gazed around the area to see if I saw the person who dropped it off. I wanted to thank them, maybe even hug them, and I'd definitely give them a cash reward. I saw nobody, but there was one thing that caught my eye. That black early 1970s Lincoln luxury car. It was parked just down the road. A chill went down my spine. This seemed like more than a coincidence, so I shut my door, locked it, and fastened the security chain. From there, I decided to thoroughly check my phone and make sure it was still in good working order. It powered up just fine. I scrolled through my contacts, and they were all there. My text message history was intact. And then I clicked to check my gallery of pictures. The first picture I noticed was of me and Sandy at the restaurant. I quickly opened it up and smiled. It was a good picture. The smile disappeared from my face and my heart dropped when I noticed that there were 16 pictures that had been taken after that. How could that be? Unless the person that found my phone was taking pictures with it. But why would they do that? I pulled up the first picture that was taken after the waitress snapped the photo of me and Sandy. It was a picture taken from one of the restaurant tables of me and Sandy exiting the restaurant. 
So I was right. I left it at the restaurant, and somebody immediately noticed that, picked it up, and instead of flagging me down to return my phone, they decided to snap a picture of me. That was weird. The next picture was of me getting into my car in the restaurant parking lot. The picture after that was me entering the post office. I scrolled to the next photo. It was me standing outside the post office staring directly at the camera. The picture appeared to have been taken from inside a car. That's when I remembered I was staring at the Lincoln luxury car when I exited the post office. The driver of that vehicle was the one who had my camera. The picture after that was taken of me while I was outside the water company building talking to my old high school teacher. The next image in the gallery was a video. I pressed play. It was from inside a vehicle. It was a moving video focused on me as I filled up my car with gas. The next several pictures sent shivers down my entire body. The pictures were from a bird's eye view of me in various stages of trying on dresses at the mall. Whoever was snapping these pictures had been inside the changing booth next to mine and had managed to hold the phone over the changing room wall and snap the pictures of me. They were followed up by multiple shots of me in the grocery store and then entering my house. There were only two pictures left after that, and they were the most disturbing of all. I let out a scream when I opened the next-to-last photo. It was a photo of me lying in my bed while I was taking a nap. The person had been inside my bedroom. I reached up and unfastened the chain to the front door. I was going to dart out of my house, run to the neighbor's house, and call the police from there. The only thing that gave me pause was that this person may have been waiting for me outside. I thought maybe the final picture on my phone would give me a clue as to whether I should stay put or flee. I opened it. It was a video. I pressed play. The video was taken inside my house, near the front door. The camera was positioned down my hallway, and I could see myself sitting on the living room couch. The camera then turned to the front door of my house, and I could see the head of a hatchet come into view. I watched as the back of the hatchet was used to create three slow, heavy, methodical knocks. The video then went black. The man was either inside my house or just outside of it. I quickly came up with a plan. I was going to unlock the front door and run out into the neighborhood screaming bloody murder on my way to the nearest neighbor's house. If the sicko tried to attack me, hopefully someone would hear my screaming and help me. As I unlocked the front door and began to turn the knob, I heard the closet door behind me creak open. I knew if I turned around, I would see the tall, thin man dressed in black, holding a hatchet high in the air, so I didn't even bother. I just turned the knob of the front door and fled. I screamed and screamed as I ran across the street. As I had hoped, several neighbors heard me and rushed out to see what the commotion was. They all ushered me into one of their houses and called the police. When the police arrived, they did a thorough search of my house, but nobody else was there. The black Lincoln was gone, too. I'll never truly know how wicked his intentions were, because they never found the man. Everywhere I go, I keep an eye out for a tall, thin man dressed in black, or his intimidating old Lincoln luxury car. He's still out there somewhere. But at least I got my phone back. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs>
visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com. Sign up for our newsletter, and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much.